Welcome to One Heart, One Mind, a podcast of the Nampa, Idaho South Stake to inspire and give hope in our efforts to build Zion. And now your host, Lindy Bauer. All right, welcome to today's podcast. This is Lindy Bauer. We're here today with Reinhard Schuster. Uh, Reinhardt was raised as a Catholic in Germany and served in Vietnam when he was 22 years old. He moved to the U.S. back in 1960. Reinhardt, we're happy and grateful to have you here with us today. Thank you. Glad uh, to be here. <laughs> uh, we're going to start with a question. of uh, So which, what branch of military did you serve in? I was actually drafted into the Army, U.S. Army. This was during the, the height of Vietnam, the Vietnam War. And I hadn't necessarily planned on getting into the military, but have a military background. My dad was actually in the German army in World War II, spent a couple of years in Russia. Uh, his dad was killed in France in the German army in World War I, right at, right at the end of World War I. So it's in our blood, sort of, kind of. How old was your father when his father was in the war? Well, when he died, he was two years old. So he doesn't, he doesn't know. His father had met him, but my dad doesn't remember that, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, and so on my side, I have military background. My wife's father was in World War II in the U.S. Navy. My wife says that my dad was job security for him during the war, <laughs> but he was in the Pacific. Uh, anyway, I have a brother-in-law, the older brother-in-law, served in Vietnam in the Air Force. The younger brother-in-law was in the Navy in Vietnam, and my brother was in the Marine Corps in Vietnam, and I was in the Army. So all the all the services were represented during that time period. It's quite the heritage. You mentioned that I was born in Germany. We came over, my family decided to come over here to the States in 1960, and I was 13 at the time. I feel very strongly, and my brother and I both do, did, that I owed this country something. Uh, because this country took us in, you know, like adopted us, and it's been so fantastic. To come as a kid, to come from Germany and come over here, we had, my mother had a sister that married a farmer in Nebraska. And so we moved when we first came over. Uh, I like to tell people that we came in a wagon from New York to Nebraska, where we moved to. But it was actually a station wagon. So (laughs) we had eight people in the station wagon. And the first day that we got to the farm, my cousin saddled a horse, put the bridle on it, and taught us to ride a horse. And, and so, you had never met this cousin before? No, we knew him in Germany. You, oh, you know, okay. But we weren't, we didn't live close, so we weren't close to him. Mm-hmm. But but to come from the background that we did, and then the first day we're over here, we get to be like in the Old West and, and ride horses, <laughs> and we'd go out twice a day and get the cows in and help milk them and, and those kind of things. It was like a dream come true to us, you know, it was, it was amazing. And when we came over, my brother and I were very close. We were just a year and a half apart. And so we were our each other's best friends for all the time growing up. To to get to do all the kid things in a totally new environment and then get uh, start going to school and so on, it, it was a pretty awesome experience. <laughs> That's great. Every kid's dream. Okay, so when you got to America, we know that you have a nickname of Rhino. Did that name come in Germany, or did that come no, in America? Way, la- way later. Can, can you tell I us was, about that one? Sure. When I was 19, so six years after we came over, I was drafted. Went through five years of active duty, including Vietnam. Then I joined the Guard and decided to stay in for a while. And, and that, as that progressed, then I finally decided, you know, I've got 
eight, nine, ten years in now, I might as well finish it and, and do 20. So I, I got in the Idaho Guard and did some really cool things. And one of my friends in the Guard says, you know, Reinhardt is just too long a name. You're old. You've got thick skin, big ears, and rhino fits. <laughs> so <clears throat> my wife says, no, that's disrespectful. And I thought, actually, it's kind of cool. This lumbering animal that, if he's provoked, can can move along at the, the pace of a racehorse, <laughs> you know, and, and nothing will stop it. <clears throat> Badge so, of honor. <laughs> so I kind of I thought, okay, that's cool. I'll, I'll go over it. <laughs> that's how I got that name. I, I've had, I feel unbelievably blessed in my life to be to be born where I'd, where I'd been born and at such a crucial time in my life to get to come over here and, and a whole new world exploded in front of me, you know, and I got to be part of it. And, and I'm fairly, a fairly positive person in how I look at things. I look for the silver lightning and, and, and it's easy in the life that I've had to give credit for those things and to recognize those things as blessings. President Eyring, a long time ago, just before he was became came into the first presidency, talked about keeping a journal, a, a daily journal, and writing down every day of blessings that he recognizes. And when you start doing that, you actually recognize things that you might otherwise. My year in v Vietnam was to to have been blessed at that point is a huge understatement. I had things happen that, looking back on it now, just seemed totally unreal. At the time, I thought, hey, I must be pretty good at this, because I should have been killed on that one, you know? So at that time, and, and being a no, new convert, it's kind of hard to to look at things realistically and give credit where credit's due. I took credit for more than, than I should have at that point. Before I went to Vietnam, my wife was very adamant that I got my patriarchal blessing and didn't mean a whole lot to me. I'll tell you the, the full story in a little bit. But but to get a blessing from some old guy that very obviously had something about him, you could feel the spirit. And when he blessed me that I would return home totally safe, I thought, okay, that's cool. But what did I know? You know, I didn't understand all that. And yet to my wife, because by then we were married just before a year before I left, to her, that was a huge reason to have peace of mind. Yeah. Because she, my wife was, we actually met through letters. Um, my sister played matchmaker. She had met my wife's older brother. And then she played matchmaker and got my, I was in the army. My wife was actually in California at the time. And so she got us to writing to each other. And it was a really interesting process where we both were in life at that time. I was 20. We both were 20, actually. And we started writing letters. And then I came home on leave, and she happened to come home at the same time. And so we had three dates, and that was in August. And then in... got to back up for a second. So you had never met. You got six months of writing letters, and you meet for the first time. What, what, is, what is that like? So you come home on leave from Vietnam? Oh, no. no. I was I was in the army getting I was going through training. Okay, so at where that where time were you located at? At Fort Benning, Georgia. So you I was come going home from officer, Georgia. Officer training school. Okay. And it was it was very different from what I maybe from from previous dating or anything, because we were both in a very realistic place 
in our lives, as it's hard to, to explain. But like I said earlier, there was no pretense or putting on airs. We were both looking for some, for a meaningful relationship. And so there was total honesty right from the beginning. And so when we actually met, I'd seen two pictures of her and I was really impressed with how she looked and then through the letters, her personality and so on. And you know Maureen, very strong willed woman, but she was so absolutely, she was raised in the church and there was no doubt and no question in her mind that once I took a serious look at the church, I hadn't been around the church at all, uh, that I would accept it. Well, now my background comes into play. I was raised Catholic and I wasn't fanatically a Catholic, but I was at pretty strong convictions there. But to suddenly think in terms of, I remember as a kid being scared to death of God because that's how it was presented to us. Uh, I used to sit in catechism class and the priest would, they instilled fear in us. And that was an intentional thing. Uh, and I think the Catholic Church to a large degree has always done that. When the monks way back when translated the Bible, that wasn't for common people. That was for them to to tell you and indoctrinate it and do the interpretation and so on. So the, the common people didn't necessarily have uh, any idea of a, of a loving relationship with a loving Heavenly Father. Uh, so that was something that was totally foreign to me. And then for me, trying to become totally self-sufficient where I didn't need anybody but my myself. And I wanted to be a, a good human being, but I didn't feel like I got to the point where I didn't feel like I don't need organized religion to tell me how to conduct my life and be a decent human being. So for the, the missionaries to come along and say to pray to a Heavenly Father and to rely on the Spirit and ask for the Spirit to guide you, I didn't need that help. Who are they to tell me that I need somebody else's help and, and have somebody else tell me how, how to think and how to live? Uh, that took a lot of adjustment. And being German, I'm just hard-headed enough that I really didn't really didn't need that. Got off the, the subject there a little bit, but. Well, so take us there. So, so jump us down the road where your heart changed a little bit and you were able to tell us how things changed. I, I took the discussions and I really liked the missionaries and certain things. Is it before leaving to war or is this after or where is this? This was before. Life? Before. We were married a year to the date mm -hmm. uh, before I left for Vietnam. But we knew from day one before we ever got married that that's where I was headed. So our first daughter, that my, my wife insisted on trying to have a baby as soon as we could, and she was born six weeks before I left. So fairly quick. In fact, we were from the job I had at Fort Benning. I became an instructor after becoming an officer and I went through a lot of training and even language tutoring at the time because I didn't really want somebody teaching at the infantry school at Fort Benning with a heavy German accent. And so, so they would grill me and anything that I said that showed my accent, uh, they tried to get rid of. I forgot where we were going. We're gonna jump on to um, oh through that process the first year where you find yeah where you finally learn to let your so so in. knowing knowing that you're going to a combat environment within a year puts puts a, a certain twist or light on on your whole life your whole relationship 
and to have a, a daughter that young when I left. And at that time, I was 22. We got married at 21. So I had training to become an advisor to South Vietnamese, the friendly Vietnamese, and went to language school. So here's a guy uh, still learning English, but then they taught me a third language. And I thought all along, I've got a really good chance still speaking German that they might send me to Germany instead. And But I, I found that Vietnamese, although very, very different from the German language, once you go through a language change, then it's a lot easier to learn a third language. And so it was fairly easy for me to to adjust myself to the point where I could make the sounds that they make, you know, in their language. But I speak very monotone, and Vietnamese language is like Cantonese, Chinese, very sing-song, melodious, a lot of up and downs. And, and but but it was easier for me to to learn it, and so my year in Vietnam was spent primarily with Vietnamese soldiers, and so I look at it as almost like a mission, a, a one-year mission to Vietnam. I didn't convert anybody over there, but I learned to love the people like you would on a mission, and had a lot of respect for them, to the point where six years ago now. In 2015, five and a half years ago, I went back just to visit. And I, I try to examine in my mind why I wanted to do that so bad. And I, the conclusion I came to was that the feeling I had about the Vietnamese people and the country, even though it was an extremely miserable place and it was tough being away from my family, the fact that, that to some degree I longed to go back and see what it was like and see what the feelings would be. And it was very, very rewarding and healing for me because a country is, the country has healed and you see no, there's no residue of, of the war. Anyway, that, that year leading up to Vietnam was, it's hard to even imagine now with the idea of going. And it wasn't that I didn't want to go because I, I had this attitude of having to pay my way. And if the country wanted me to go over there and serve, that was something I was more than willing to to pay back. So, and, and Maureen was super supportive and she was going back to live with her parents for that year and that helped her raise the, the little girl. And so it was, everything was set and planned for and, and ready to go. So I could focus on on this thing that I was getting into. Huge adventure in a way, but really scary because of all the unknowns, you know. Mm -hmm. I had worked with, in fact, everybody that I worked with on this instructor team that I was on at, at Fort Benning had been in country and at least one tour. And so I, I learned a lot from those guys and they were, uh, it wasn't like they were speaking to some assembly and telling about their year in Vietnam. They were talking to a young guy that was gonna going to go over there and the things he needed to know. So I learned a lot from those guys, from personal experience from those guys. And that was that probably saved my life in several different ways. But but that it made for an awkward year before my going over. It was one of the one of the regrets I have, I think, was because of what I was facing in that next year our relationship wasn't as 
committed, in my case, as it should have been or could have been, because my my mind was divided, my attention was divided, and that's looking back on it now pretty understandable. Mm -hmm. So, but we got through it. My year in Vietnam was probably one of the most character shaping years I've ever spent, and in some ways it was the most successful I have felt in my entire life. And and obviously, I, in looking back later, I looked at some of the things that happened. There were times when uh, the Vietnamese had been, most of the ones that I worked with, had been in the war for several years. And here I was, green, brand new. Uh, and yet I was supposed to be an advisor. Basically, we didn't advise them on tactics and stuff like that but we helped train the people and to a large degree we were uh, we used american support is what i coordinated especially air support for this infantry unit and then my second half they called me back from being in a field all the time to a division and i became what they called a, a divisional long-range recon patrol advisor so what i did was i had an american sergeant working with me and we would go out with five or six Vietnamese for a week at a time. You go out by helicopter, they drop you off, and in some of the places we couldn't land a helicopter because it'd rush into trees and stuff, jungle, so we would repel in. So then to start working with American Rangers and Vietnamese Rangers and, and do these really small unit helicopter insertions and going in by helicopter, and, and when we made contact, six guys, and, and, my, my first job, I was a, an advisor to a battalion, an infantry battalion, 600 men. And my counterpart was a Vietnamese major, and I was a first lieutenant. So there was a lot of experience there. So where everything was new to me, they were old hands at it. And there were a lot of times when we would start taking fire, and the Vietnamese were so casual about it, they would maybe nonchalantly slip behind a tree. Uh, and I was laying on the ground because <laughs> that's what we were taught, you know. As soon as there's fire, you hit the ground. Anyway, so after a while, you try to do the same thing. You try to be nonchalant about it. And so I would kind of hunker down a little bit, and then the fire would get a little more concentrated. And then I'd go ahead and lay down, kind of casual-like. And then eventually I would look like a deflated pair of fatigues laying on the ground because the fire would be hitting all around us. And that happened dozens and dozens of times that that kind of luck and at, at the time I thought yeah I'm pretty lucky well somebody's hand was involved there and that blessing that the patriarch uh, had given me I didn't recognize for what it was until years later but yeah. it was very very real it's powerful powerful right now, will you take us to um you tell of a time in your life when, when you woke up with some very significant thoughts and okay, that's. Let, let me back up a little bit. My conversion is interesting. My wife and I were at Fort Benning. Uh, she was pregnant, and she had morning, noon, and night sickness. And especially in that heat, we couldn't afford air conditioning. Morning sickness is a lie. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> Said it's a lie. <laughs> Wrong name. I had been through the discussions, and when the when the the missionaries challenged me to be baptized, I. I said there are a lot of things. I love the, the, the certain things in the church. I wasn't sure about God. It's hard to want to be baptized 
when you're not real sure about that relationship or how it should progress. I believed the story of Joseph Smith, and I don't know why I would question one and, and accept the other, but Maureen is not the most patient person. Where she had the conviction of the gospel that she did, she, I came home one day and I see a couple of suitcases packed, and I look at them and I said, what's going on? And she says, well, you promised to take a serious look at this and at the gospel, and I think you lied to me. Well, it's not that I lied intentionally, but I was dragging my feet. I just wasn't convinced. And so she says, what I've decided I'm going to do is go home for a while to my parents. And we didn't have a baby yet then, but uh, she said, when you decide what's important in your life, you let me know. Kind of shocking. But that was the first time I realized how, how strong her conviction was. And, and I could understand that if I really had looked at it seriously, she's probably right. I, I might have accepted it, but I wasn't ready at that point. So I called missionaries and fairly light, lightly, I guess, lighthearted. Says, what are you guys doing next Saturday? <laughs> Because I thought, that's a pretty small step I could take if that's going to keep her here. I wasn't, I wasn't ready to lose her. And I really felt that once, she, once I let her go and didn't try with everything I had to stop her and show her how important she was to me, that I might never, I might lose her altogether. And so to be baptized was something I didn't totally understand, but I was willing to do it, just to smooth things over. And so my conversion wasn't exactly like you, like maybe you read about other people, and, and there were certain things, like I said, that really, really rang true, but I didn't have a personal conviction of it. Consequently, I was baptized, and I don't remember I hardly remember anything about the, about the baptism and and having the Spirit bestowed on me. So and, was, there, was there a point then when things... Okay, so, so I went through the, the Vietnam experience and I think, I think Heavenly Father probably blessed me by withholding certain parts of the Spirit because I wasn't ready. Interesting happened three years after I got home, uh, almost to the day. I wake up one morning, and I don't remember a dream, but I'm sure my, my mind was working overtime while I was asleep. But I woke up with a absolute strong conviction that, yeah, I have to explain something else. The things I saw in Vietnam, I didn't see too many, too many Americans die because I didn't work with, with Americans very much. But I saw a lot of Vietnamese not make it. And out of my officer candidate class, we graduated 115 people, and 55 of those died first three months. We all, because after the first year of being commissioned as an officer, then we all became first lieutenants, and then we all hit country, hit Vietnam about the same time, within a, just a few months of each other. And to lose 55 people of that class in the first three months was pretty tough. And there's a newspaper called The Stars and Stripes that's put up, I don't know what they're 
and it would list weekly casualties. Not wounded, but, but the people killed. And there were days, weeks, when there'd be 360, 380, week after week after week. And, and so you start looking for the names of people that, that you know. That's, that's a real rude awakening. And by the things I was going through, uh, it, was, it was easy to accept when you see 360 people die every week, their names. Uh, and of course, you didn't know most of them, but when you realize that that's not, that's not fantasy or that's, not, that's, that's very real because of what I'm going through, you know. So consequently, as I got home, there was not only the readjustment to, to the person you married to, but to have a year and six week old baby that really didn't have any use for me because she got along fine without me for a year. And heaven forbid, I would interrupt her during Sesame Street. <laughs> that was just unheard of to her. <laughs> anyway, it, it was just, she was an absolute miracle. So a lot of adjustments when I got back. I was driving down Amity here in Nampa the day before the 4th of July and listening to the radio and some kids were on the sidewalk throwing firecrackers in the street and one of them went off under my car and before I knew it up, I was up in somebody's yard and I don't know how I got between those two cars that were parked there uh, and I was I bailed out of the car and I was going to kill somebody <laughs> and here are these little kids. Poor little <laughs> These poor little kids, their eyes were this big, and I had to stop myself. And the rhino. <laughs> here, here you have frustration. Didn't even talk about PTSD in those days, but I knew there was something wrong with me, and and the anger. I've always been a fairly controlled person, fairly even keeled, and all of a sudden I would have, like my temper would explode totally uncontrolled and it scared me and and I had a friend that was also a Vietnam veteran he, he told me one day and he was a police officer he says you can control it nobody else can nobody can talk you into mellowing down and, and it doesn't matter how much counseling you get if you're willing to allow these emotions and your your temper your anger to get away from you then it's on you and I thought that was kind of, here was a friend talking to me, and I, it kind of hurt my feelings. And I knew he had a really bad temper, and, and so what he was talking about and advising me was something he had gone through. And so I thought, okay, I need to look at that. And that, that really helped kind of reshape me at that point. Didn't stop it totally, but it, it really helped. So three years after I get home, I'm still dealing with the anger and the frustration and a lot of bitterness because I saw a lot of people were killed and hurt due to somebody's, somebody else's negligence or poor judgment. And, and that's really hard to take. So I wake up one morning and, and my first thought was, as the, these thoughts start to kind of take shape in my mind, that, wow, I'm only 23 and and I'm, I'm pretty, pretty smart. I figured a lot of this stuff. No, I was 26 by then, 25. Anyway, I kind of took the credit on, on myself, but, but it was almost like a voice talking. You need to get rid of this anger because it's going to eat you up. And I could see where 
a continued in a way it's like like you're torturing yourself but these these feelings and these emotions come and you don't really have any control over and when you when you have smells and you hear sounds that take you right back to those instances when you're a person that feels like he has absolutely totally control over your own emotions and stuff to suddenly have something like that hit you and you you totally out of your present uh, to have something take over your whole existence where you're in a different place all of a sudden is really hard to take it shakes your confidence anyway it's scary but it, it helped me to understand my dad more so from that standpoint it was it was good I remember my dad talking about being in a place called Stalingrad in, in Russia and he always talked about being on the outskirts of it in this big industrial area and as a kid I always thought okay he was he was back in the rear somewhere you know and, and he was talking about always getting in trouble because he let his hair go to go to Laura and stuff so he was he was really not involved in any real heavy stuff then I read a book about it and that's where all the heavy fighting was <laughs> so he was in it and then I remember him talking about once the Russians started turning things around and attacking, then the German army, they went into Russia with a million and 300,000, I think, soldiers. And they came back with about 300,000. So they lost a million soldiers in Russia in that campaign. And my dad made it back home. And then he tried, he got to his family, but the war wasn't totally over. So they snatched him up again and he ended up in the Battle of the Bulge in Belgium against the Americans and he, he, I remember him talking about that a little bit. So that really helped me to, to identify with what my dad was going through. Only I saw in my dad a person that had never learned how to control it and allowed his anger and frustration and stuff to, to take it out on his family and especially my mom and that's something as a boy, as a kid, I could never forgive him for. Back to the, th the three years after I came home. This voice told me, if I don't let go of this, that it's going to eat me up and it's going to cause me all kinds of physical problems. That I absolutely, it wasn't fair to my family if I didn't learn how to control it. And it would ruin my relationship with my family and I would, I stood the chance of losing them. But then we had we had one other daughter, and I think my wife was was pregnant with the third one. So that that really helped to shape how I I looked at things and how I wanted to change to improve. And the fact that to suddenly hear a voice and and give that gives you advice that makes absolute perfect sense, I started to recognize okay somebody is trying to help me and tell me to wake up and and how to change things and so that that was a huge catalyst in in essence my my conversion in recognizing that i couldn't do it that's that i had to rely on on him now almost the same time within days of that i woke up and there was one incident where in vietnam our team a six-man team had been we knew that at the end of this rainy season, the canals were drying up and they were using, the enemy was using the canals as infiltration routes. And so we were assigned to sit in ambush along this one canal. So 
it was almost pitch black. There was a little bit of light, and and we hear movement in the canal, and so we got we got already hunkered down, and two guys came walking down through the canal, and so it was a free fire zone. So anything that was moving was was the enemy. So once they got into our kill zone, we opened up, and the one guy dropped, and the other guy took off running. And that was very unusual because we had a very concentrated, tight kill zone. The guy ran, and I remember raising up and firing almost the entire magazine out of my weapon at this guy running. And I, I, there was enough light. I could see the, the puddles in the background, uh, little geysers of water where the bullets were hitting. And, and he had a, a pistol in his hand. And everybody was firing at him, but nobody was hitting him, which was pretty unusual for us. Then the guy stops, and it's just a dark shape out there. And he stops, he drops his weapon, and I remember seeing his smile. He's smiling at us, and he starts walking toward us. And we kept firing because we weren't in a position to take prisoners. We couldn't couldn't get out of there that, that night with, with the prisoner. The guy keeps walking. So we take him prisoner. And he is, he's an older Vietnamese soldier and didn't wear rank, but you could tell he was, by his stature and, and the way he held himself and so on, he was somebody. And so we kept him there during the night. And the fear then is if anything happens and he starts making noise, you know, we're going to die. But he stayed quiet the whole time. So the next morning we get airlifted out and, and, Sadly, about two months later, I didn't I didn't hear much more about him, but he gave he gave a lot of information, and then at the end of about two months, they executed him. Totally not legal, and it wasn't the Americans; it was the Vietnamese that did it. But but when I woke up that morning, and and I had really wondered why, when a guy is giving up, I thought we were the good guys. We were there to kill the enemy, and and everything I believed was that God was protecting us because we were we were doing the good thing. We were helping people, and the North Vietnamese were coming in, and and invading their country and killing people and stuff. And and the th the thought I woke up with that that God is involved in everything, but He doesn't take sides. There were good guys on our side, and obviously there were good guys on their side. And that really was a shocker to me. And then, but then, on the opposite side of that, to allow him to then get killed and be executed, what was the purpose in that? But my bitterness came from all the lives that were lost, and what little I saw, the thousands of family members that would grieve over these young guys. And, and they were all my age. And I was old at 22, 23. I was old for when you looked at all the rest of the guys in Vietnam. But, but you can see where, where that kind of a year was an unbelievable uh, shaping of, of your personality and your, your character, you know, and your values and so on. So there, again, is an incident where somebody else was involved and in putting things into my head that I couldn't deny was anything but the spirit. So that took, just admitting that was, was not hard because I was, I was pretty convinced at that point. I believe, I can't help but believe that 
that God has, the scriptures tell us that God is a loving Father and knows each one of us. He certainly showed me what he knew about me better than I knew myself. I've had other things like that, like that happen, generally in relation to other people. Now, I went through several, couple different careers. At the age of 38, this friend of mine I was talking about earlier that talked about my temper, worked for the Ada County Sheriff's Department, and he introduced me over there, and, and at the age of 38, I became a cop. Not having had any prior experience in that, I had looked at it, but the pay really was not good. So $2 at BYU, and I make a huge career change, and had to take a pay cut. So it's a good thing my daughter's had scholarships. <laughs> but, but I realized once I got into that, that that should have been my life's vocation all along. I love dealing with people. I love helping people. And I really had one of the blessings I was given in my patriarchal blessing was that as long as I'm living righteously, I would be able to read, not read people's minds, but, but recognize people's innermost thoughts. And I had a lot of experiences in feeling how, how the person I'm dealing with probably had to feel. It was easier for me to maybe put myself into their place. And, and being as, as large as I am, I wrestled in school. I learned to box. So physically, I'm not afraid of a whole lot of people. And, and so as far as when you deal with people, especially in a confrontational situation, there's, there's the alpha dog and, and the others. It was easier for me to not ever feel intimidated. And after the way my dad raised me, other people's attempts at intimidating me didn't work a whole lot. <laughs> because the ultimate intimidator had already trained me. But it really made me feel feel way more empathetic, maybe, than, than I would have otherwise if I hadn't had those experiences earlier in my life. And again, military experience and a lot of weapons training and, and having been through a combat experience, when you get shot at as a cop, it doesn't freak you out like it would somebody that hasn't been through it. So... You have an amazing story. You have a lot of stories. I think we could go for it forever just hearing all your stories. Thank you. That's why I'm letting you redirect it here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, well, thank you. Thank you for sharing your heart. Thank you for sharing your testimony. Thank you for... Can I say one more thing? You may, please. Okay. I mentioned earlier that I feel very, very blessed in my life. I, I think I was meant to be in the gospel. And sometimes we... I see it in my own kids. They, they struggle with the gospel sometimes. And, and in other people. Some people have had maybe a little bit of trouble with with the isolation or the what are we calling it where we separate ourselves because of COVID. Quarantine. Quarantine. That's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. <laughs> we get we get a little isolated sometimes and not getting to go to church on Sundays. But but if we have the desire to be closer to Heavenly Father and let the gospel work in our lives, we just have to make the effort. In fact. We're told if you just have the desire to want to follow that route, that's the beginning. And and if you keep that in mind, no matter how I've been blessed, but I've also had sad periods in my life, trial periods, everybody does. And it just makes us better.
as long as we keep in mind that there's always hope. And, and it's up to us to look for that and, and reach for it. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. We, we sure appreciate you and love you and, you and spending your time with us today. Thank you so much for listening to One Heart, One Mind, NAMPA. Our hosts are the amazing overseer, Kim Keller, and the lovely Lindy Bauer. President Keller's right arm is our project director and podcast announcer, Casey Maddox. Our front line is the ever-ready Rachel Bauer to direct the site recording. A big thanks to Michelle Lugrin, who is our backbone project manager and who keeps us all together. Our contact man to coordinate communications clearly is John Freeman. Our technical life is given by Jesus Gomez, the key grip and podcast editor, and Don Ricker, the digital platform manager. Not to mention, they both provide plenty of behind-the-scenes good humor for our happiness and entertainment.